All right, uh, let's start out with prayer. Father God, you are um, our God. You're our king. We love you. And we desire to meet with you today. Um, Lord, I pray that you would be with every individual in this room right now, that your spirit would minister to each of us exactly what we need to hear, myself included, Father. That through this passage in Colossians, you would open up our hearts and that you would do your great work of not only comforting and loving us, but Father, getting in underneath all the things that we say and do in our lives that dishonor you. I pray that you'd help us see what it looks like to bear fruit and to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And I ask that you do that by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, we are continuing our book, uh, or continuing our trek through the book of Colossians. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to chapter 1. And uh, we're in a section that I've been calling The Harvest, and this section really is called The Harvest because it focus, focuses on this idea and this concept of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Paul is describing how this gospel message transformed the Colossian community. And not only the community itself, but the entire world is being transformed by the gospel. And Paul is uh, describing that there's a, this, a transformation that's happening, and it's happening at two different levels. And we're going to look at, we looked last week at evangelism. We're going to look this week at the other element of the gospel's, the gospel's transformative message that affects these Colossians. Um, Paul uses language in this text before we read it. I'll just call it out so you can see. He, he, he refers to it bearing fruit and increasing. This is the gospel's impact. It bears fruit and it increases. And this is a very vivid picture of the effect of the gospel. Um, but here's the deal. When we think about the gospel bearing fruit, we tend to think about it in terms of evangelism. We tend to think of it going out, ministering to people who are unbelievers, then becoming believers, and then trusting in Christ Jesus. And that's the gospel bearing fruit. In, in a very real way, that is the gospel bearing fruit. But there's also a way, other than it growing out, that it grows us up by hearing the gospel message, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's turn to Colossians 1, verse 5. We're going to pick up halfway down that verse. It says this, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth. That's the of this is the hope that is laid up for them in heaven in, verse, in, the, verse, uh, in the previous part of this verse. Um, he says, the gospel, this is the word of truth, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So what I want to look at today and really focus in on is the rest of verse 6. Paul says that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. And then he says to the Colossian church, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul's saying there's a kind of bearing of fruit and a kind of increasing that isn't just evangelistic. 
It isn't just missional, like we talked about last week. These people aren't just becoming believers. Something else is going on um, within the Colossian community. And we hinted at it last week when we looked at this uh, idea of conforming to the image of Christ, but we're going to flesh it out now. Here's my aim for today. My aim, um, just to lay my cards out before you, is that when, to communicate that when Paul is referring to bearing fruit here, he's not just referring to believers being added to their number, but he's referring to them becoming more like Jesus Christ, them being more like the one who saved them. Another way of putting this is bearing fruit, and this will be very clear for all of you who know Christianese, bearing fruit is like displaying good works. The theological term for this is sanctification. Sanctification or being sanctified by God day by day in ways that are both visible, people can see them because of what you're doing, and practical. They benefit others, they benefit yourself. (coughs) And so, how does that relate to the gospel? Why is it that God's grace and truth says something about that, communicates something about that? How does it relate to what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ? Let's start with this part of the passage. Paul says, as it also does among you. So when he says that, he's referring to this, the work that's being done by this guy, Epaphras, this gentleman, Epaphras, who really is going to be the focus of the next two weeks. The descriptors that Paul uses for him are very significant. Um, this, this Epaphras dude communicated the gospel to the, the community of Colossae, and they became believers. And, and Epaphras's main point um, in coming to Paul or one of his chief points, is to communicate to Paul, these guys are legit Christians. They are real Christians. And it says here, they made, he made known to Paul and Paul's crew their love in the Spirit. So somehow, Epaphras, when he comes to Paul with the situation, the problem that he's got with the Colossian church, he clearly communicates to Paul that these guys are the real deal. These are authentic, spirit-wrought Christians they are believers, and they love the saints. But in describing um, Epaphras, Paul also says about him that he's a faithful minister. And the picture we get there is that Epaphras is serving this church regularly. This is not simply him just a one-shot deal where he communicates the gospel, but he's ministering to them faithfully. This church is being preached to, and the gospel is being constantly proclaimed to them. And so, It's not just a matter of adding new disciples for Epaphras. It is a matter of internal growth. And so that's clue number one, that there's something bigger here than just evangelism. Clue number two is this, and it's more clear. If you go down to verses 9 and 10, and we'll have this up on the screen. It says here um, in verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, from the day that Paul and his people heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, Colossian church, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then he says this, bearing fruit, this is what it means to be fully pleasing to the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now we're going to tackle this entire text from a different angle in the next few weeks, but since we're jumping the gun and going here a little bit early, (laughs) here's the deal. Paul is telling them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You're believers now. I'm praying for God to cause you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he describes this as bearing fruit 
in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, that's stunning if you think about it for a second, that Paul's saying, hey, listen, I know that you're believers. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spend unceasing times communicating to God my desire, my affection for you to have this internal growth of bearing fruit in good works. None of this in Paul's mind, or at least in the language that we've got here, is evangelistic. This is all about the community of faith here becoming more like Christ Jesus. And so the idea of us growing up toward God instead of growing out is difficult when we think about um, what Epaphras was doing originally because he was this evangelist, he was a missionary. This transformation, like I said earlier, is called sanctification in, in theological circles. What that word means is this. To be sanctified means to be set apart from the common, from the profane, or from the world. To be sanctified means to be made holy. Now, this is huge, and this is probably larger than even if you've read this book before than you realize, because this entire book, of the book of Colossians, is designed specifically to inform the Colossian community what it looks like to actually be in the process of sanctification, to be sanctified by God. That's why this letter was, was written. So a little bit of context. Paul is writing this letter from prison, or at least he's in prison, which means that he's got chains. And he tells them at the end of this letter, remember my chains, remember my chains. So he is writing this letter from a place of imprisonment. Epaphras, this man who first communicated the gospel to the Colossian church, has come from Colossae after faithfully ministering to them, and he's reported that, yes, the Colossian church is the real deal. They are real believers, but there is a problem. Some people have come in among the Colossian believers, and they are saying, yes, the gospel is awesome. The gospel is excellent. The gospel is what you need. Jesus is real. He's all the things that Paul said he was in Ephesus and that Epaphras took from Ephesus, Ephesus and brought to Colossae. He's all of these things, yes. However, <laughs> you need something in addition to Jesus. You need something in addition to the gospel. One of the first things that happens to new believers, new Christians, um, when they first believe, after they get through the state, the initial euphoria of being redeemed by Christ, and after that sort of fades and gets bogged down by life, everyday life, new Christians realize, and some of you guys may, may have experienced this, maybe you didn't grow up in the church and have always had like church language in your head, um, you realize after that, that, hey, listen, I'm still messed up. I'm still kind of jacked up. I mean, I'm not fixed the way I should be. Uh, my attitude is wrong, and to be perfectly honest, my desires, my affections, they tend to hurt other people and hurt myself if I just went with them. Um, and we realize that we have sin in our lives still, that we may have been saved, we may have been redeemed, but we still have this indwelling sin that is in many ways, despite the fact that we trust in Jesus Christ, still calling the shots. And that creates for, for new Christian believers this cognitive dissonance where I feel like I shouldn't be this way. I feel like I should be different than this. <clears throat> now, this is what's going on in the Colossian church. They're struggling with this difference between what they think they should be and what they are. They're thinking to themselves, I I'm not good enough 
to be called a Christian. I still do bad things. I still desire bad things. I'm not, I'm not like Jesus Christ. And so these teachers come in, these people come in, they say, you know what, you're absolutely right. You're struggling with this whole sanctification process, and it's because you're missing things. There are certain things that you're missing that you need to weave into the gospel, your understanding of Christianity, and then when you have those things, you will be holy. And what he's referring to there is there's this term, a fancy term, called syncretism. And long story short, that term basically just means it is an amalgamation, it is a blending of two worldviews. And so you have the gospel over here, this worldview that views the beauty of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the tree as being sufficient, and this idea that there's certain things that we have to do to earn our way. Um, and Paul addresses this head-on later in Colossians. Um, chapter 2, verse 20 says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is saying that these things that you guys are adding to Jesus Christ, all of these different things that you're trying to weave into the gospel, they may have the appearance of wisdom, but they are not going to do what you want them to do. They are not going to accomplish what you want them to do. They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The indulgence of the flesh here means sinning, being inclined to sin. Paul is saying that you as a Christian are not saved by taking things out of your life. That is not how you are saved. You are not saved by that. You can't earn your salvation and you can't earn your sanctification. And the reason why is because um, salvation in the Christian life comes from outside of you. It is an alien reality that collides with you. Um, and um, sanctification happens the exact same way. Back in chapter 1, what we were just reading, Paul describes the Colossians bearing fruit, and he says, clearly you guys are exhibiting some characteristics that are Christian. You're exhibiting some elements that are good works, but at the end of the day, and despite this false teaching, we see that. Um, but he says, you need to recognize that when the gospel came to you, um, when you understood and heard the grace of God in truth, that's what caused the bearing fruit to happen. Um, so what is that? What is the grace of God in truth? Let's look at that a little bit. You guys already probably filled in the gap. I mean, it is the gospel. That's what Epaphras brought to them. Um, the gospel that God has somehow made a way for us to be redeemed and reconciled through the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul is telling them that you bear fruit the same way that you were saved, that God made a way for you to bear fruit. Paul doesn't see a difference between trusting in Christ for his saving work on the cross and trusting in Christ every single day of your life for the ongoing work of sanctification. They aren't different elements for him. So both of them come from understanding God's grace in truth. And to understand how grace, how this works, like how does sanctification work? How does it functionally work in the life of a believer? We'll start at the beginning here. 
and define some stuff. What does it mean to have indwelling sin? What is indwelling sin? This is a phrase that's used a lot um, when it, we talk about the sin that still remains after you trust in Jesus um, in terms of practical ways. Why is it that we desire things contrary to what we know is right and good? Why is it that we have a desire or inclination, every human being, to stuff that if we were just to follow it, we would hurt people and hurt ourselves? <laughs> Roman one, Romans 1 actually explains this really clearly. It says that all of humanity not only knows that sin is wrong at a very base level, but all humanity also knows, no matter where they are, no matter what they say they believe, that sin deserves to some degree to be punished. This is what Romans 1 says from front to back. Romans 7 even presses the language even further by saying that sinning isn't just what you do. Sinning isn't what you actively do. Sinning is something that is inside of us. Sin isn't just doing certain things. What we see, these outward expressions of sin, are actually evidence of something inside of us. Romans 7, 7 through 8 says this. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Then he says this, stunningly, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That is an interesting way to describe sinning. Because he didn't say, I felt inclined to do this, I did it, and that's sin. He said that there's something inside of us, and he calls it sin here, that when it sees the commandment and recognizes God's will in my actions, it seizes the opportunity and it produces commandment breaking. There is a kind of thing that dwells at the core of a human being that acts as a main antagonist to honoring God and following God's will. This isn't Paul's idea. This isn't some sort of novelty that he's introduced. Jesus, in Mark 7, um, talks about how a person actually becomes guilty before God. How is somebody defiled? Is it what they eat? If they eat pork, is it defiling them? Jesus responds and engages this <coughs> um, in Mark 7. What comes out of a person, this is Jesus' own words, is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is engaging the same exact idea that Paul is. We think oftentimes that our main problem is that we do bad things. We do bad things. We're inclined to do bad things. Um, but Jesus and Paul are saying, actually, that's not the main problem. The main problem is that inside your heart, bad things arise naturally. That's your inclination. They come from within. Sin looks at a commandment, 
sees an opportunity to break it and takes advantage of that opportunity and breaks it. So what is this sin? Like, if we want to put a name on it, it produced covetousness in, in Romans 7. What is this sin that Paul's referring to? And we've talked about it before because it shows up commonly throughout Scripture. According to Romans 1, the sin in our heart that yields every other sin is the desire to put anything above God. It is the inclination to honor something higher than God. (laughs) Romans 1 says that we exchanged the Creator who made us and loves us for creation, everything else in the universe, anything else in the universe. This can play itself out in a variety of ways. Anything from Instagram, Facebook, television, and we have these things that sort of orbit our lives, or we, we, we rather, we orbit them to some degree in terms of our time, and um, what we see, whether it's our work, or whether it's Seahawks, or whether it's whatever it might be that we sort of put there as our primary focus, we place value on it above and beyond God, and that at the core of human beings, is what causes this. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not intending to uh, guilt trip you. So get off Instagram and says he's guilt tripping us about Instagram right now in this moment. No, I'm not. Um, I'm not saying any of those things are bad in and of themselves. They're not bad. We make them bad by where we put them in our affections. So just ask this question of yourself, just as a diagnostic. In the course of a normal day, Does your affections, your desires, your thinking orbit God or do they orbit something else or some other things and God's kind of a thing that you do when you get, you know, on the side, when you get time? Every sin, every single thing that we do that dishonors God with our bodies comes from this inclination to behave in this way or to honor God less than we honor other things. According to Jesus, according to Paul, this desire is at the core of every human beings, and it is simply, if I want to put it simply, it's a preference for other things over God. So there's something broken inside of us. It impairs our vision because if you want to think about it logically, like if God made everything, if God created all things, and our affections are geared to loving those things in a way that's unhealthy, for us and for other people around us. It tells us that there's something impaired about our vision because that God is actually way more glorious, way more worthy than any of the things that he made because he made them. All of their, view, their beauty and their glory is derivative. And so there's something impairing our sight here. Now, let's pivot and shift gears and, and turn to the good news. That's what's broken in us. The gospel, Paul says, is God's grace in truth. And so here's the beauty of it, that despite that brokenness, our impaired vision on who he is, (laughs) despite our dishonoring of him by loving other stuff more than him, somehow, incredibly, God in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, has made a way for us to be purified and sanctified and redeemed. I'm going to read a passage, it's like four verses long, it's kind of long, in the book of Titus, and Paul is describing to Titus the transformation that happens in a human being when God's grace enters their life. Paul says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but He saved us according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Lord, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I want to revel for a second just in that one phrase, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Through Jesus. Not through works done by us in righteousness. That is not how we are saved. But through the cross of Christ. That's how we're forgiven. And I really want you to understand that this was a difficulty for me growing up. I really want you to understand that this is not a past tense thing. This is not a present tense thing. Um, Christ didn't just save us from what we've done in the past. Christ didn't just save us from what we are struggling in right now. For those who believe every single sin, even the ones you have yet to commit, have been paid for by Christ Jesus. I want you to think about this for a moment. When Jesus went to that tree 2,000 years ago, and when he laid down his life to secure that forgiveness, use your imaginations here for a bit. I don't want to, this could get really close to blasphemy, but I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes eternally. And imagine for a second that he must have, there must have been a dialogue of some sort, an eternal dialogue, um, where he must have told his father, hey, listen, I want you to bring in everything that Jeremy will owe you. I want you to bring in every sin or dishonoring that Jeremy will do. I want you to bring all of it in, every drop. And I want you, Father, to lay it all on me, everything from his first breath to his last. Lay it all on me, Father. Do not leave out a single drop. Not a single drop. I want all of it, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to bear it on the cross for him. Now, if you're me, and you're watching this, you want to tell Jesus, no, don't do it. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. If you take this, it will crush you. It will destroy you. My sin and the punishment I know that I deserve from God will kill you, Jesus. You do not want this. And yet, knowing that, and knowing me even more intimately than I will until I die and I'm with him and he can tell me about myself, he still traded places with me. And in that act that he did on the tree, his perfect righteousness was given to me. Now, 
single sin, not a single bad attitude his entire life. And all of my life's failures, all of my sin, all of the wrath that was due to me swallows him up on that tree. Even things that in this day I have yet to commit, he's paid for it. What kind of Savior are we dealing with here? What kind of Savior is this? One of my biggest failures to recognize as a kid growing up in the church before I made a beeline away from it was the depth of God's forgiveness for my sin. And I really believe that at the crux of sanctification, this is what we're talking about. We were talking about what did God actually do on that tree? I could believe that God paid for my former sins because I knew them. I knew that he had paid for those. I mean, I could believe that. I knew those sins, but every sin that I would ever commit, that he had paid for that, when I realized that that was true, that's when sanctification actually started to happen. When I recognized that even the failures I had committed, I would commit later on, were paid for, that's when it happened. What is at the root of sanctification? I want to read Colossians 3, 8 through 10, and dig a little bit deeper before we close this out. It says here in Colossians 3, 8 through 10, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is the heart of sanctification. Paul says, put on the new self. You've put on the new self. <clears throat> how, how does that work? How does, how does that, who's doing that? He says, the new self that you have when you put faith in Jesus Christ is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Uh, if you were here last week, you remember we went into Romans 8 and we read this line, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. This creator in Colossians and this son in Romans is the same person. It's Jesus Christ. God's plan for us who trust in Jesus' work is to make us like him. That's him doing that. That's what sanctification is. Now, here's the main question is, how does this happen in our lives? How does God conform us to the image of Christ? Do we just write a list of things that are bad to do? And we just don't do them? Do we just have a checklist for our ethical codes or our morality and just not do it? And the answer is no. That's not Christianity and that's not the gospel. That's how unbelievers do moral things, but that's not Christianity. Here's how sanctification works. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from who? The Lord, who is the Spirit. 
This is sanctification. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit's changing of us to look like and to sound like Jesus Christ. How do we rid ourselves of sin? How do we bear fruit of good works? It's a work of God. It is an act of the living God in our hearts. According to this text, what we do here is we look at Jesus. We look to Jesus Christ. We do what we did to be saved. We embrace Jesus Christ with our affections, our desires, as our all-satisfying treasure. We love him. We delight in him. We spend time with him in the word. We spend time with him on our knees in prayer. We get our eyes off of ourselves and get our eyes off of our sin. And we put our eyes on the one who saved us for whom they belong. The knee-jerk reaction for most believers is that now that I'm saved, I really got to fix myself up. I got to get this situation in order. I still do this. I still say these things. I still look at these things. I need, I'm broken, and God can't possibly approve of that. And that initial inclination is, is a good inclination to have. You should desire it. How you act next will determine what you know about your salvation, what you know really happened in Jesus Christ on that cross. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 paints a beautiful picture for this, and I want you to, uh, to really see this as it is uh, in this text. Therefore, my beloved, this is Paul talking to the Philippian church, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So notice he's saying, you've always obeyed, continue to obey. What does obedience look like? He says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we were to stop there, and I have a Catholic buddy, he stops there. We have to continue through the next part of the text. But if, if, if we stop there, we are in, we, we should really, really be scared about what this salvation thing looks like. Fear and trembling are not inviting words. But Paul doesn't stop there. That's not a period, that is a comma. He says, for it is God who works in you. How does he do it, Paul? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Think about that for a second. For it is God who works in you. The reason you're in fear and trembling, working out your salvation, is because, get this, the living God who breathed the entire universe into existence is in this second, if you are a believer, inside of you, inside of your soul. And he has, he's committed himself to purifying you every day of your life. And let me tell you, he has no plans to give up. He has no plans to give up. Some of you probably need to hear that. I need to hear it almost every day. He will not give up. He will bring you through to the end. But we don't become like Christ by warding off symptoms. By saying, you know what, I'm just going to play the surface game and I'm going to cut out lying, I'm going to cut out cheating, I'm going to out, cut out stealing, cut out lusting. We should absolutely make every effort to do that. But that's not how we win this war. We need to get deep in our hearts and not fight on the surface. 
we need to ask questions constantly of ourselves. What do I love most? What did I love most today? What do I prize? What do I treasure? To kill sin, you don't make a list and cut things out of the list. To kill sin, you drown sin in your heart with a flood of God. You flood your heart with God. Um, <clears throat> my plea for you today, my, and this is the p- whole point of this conversation, is that you would saturate your heart with Christ Jesus so that sin no longer has any room to coexist. Um, and this isn't a one-time thing. You guys know this is true. You will fight this war of affections, this war of desire, every single day of your life. Uh, But I want you to know that if you believe in him, if you believe in Christ Jesus, victory is already yours. And the reason it's yours is because the victor, Jesus Christ, has made himself yours. And therefore, the battle is already won. As we worship and take communion in the next few minutes, I would like for you to talk to God. I would like, some of you have probably realized to some degree that you need to talk to him. You need to pray to him about this. You need God to help you love him the way you should. You need God to help you trust him the way you should. Some of you need God to hold on to you right now because things feel like they're falling apart. He will hold on to you. I I want you to know that. He's promised to hold on to you, and he will do it. Some of you may feel like, I've never ever seen sanctification this way. It's always been a list of rules, and when I don't meet that standard, I go back into the same cycles of hopelessness and despair, and you've been white-knuckling it every day of your life. Failure after failure after failure, reset, 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 Um, If you feel like you need to pray with somebody, we're going to have people in the back. If you feel like you need to pray with with somebody, please do that. But I I just want to commit this to you um, for your edification and just for your embracing that your greatest act today could be letting go of that white knuckling. Your attitude could be shaped around instead of trying to cut things out of my life and focusing on that, that I need to be focused on getting my heart into the Bible, getting my eyes onto things that honor God, delighting in what he delights in. I want to read one final passage to you before we close. If you're a believer, you'll be taking communion. There's a connection here I want you to make as a believer. Communion, like sanctification, is exactly the same thing. The Christian life is very simple. Get your eyes off of this and put your eyes on Jesus. The body and blood of Jesus Christ that were broken and shed for us, the reason we do communion is to remind ourselves of the cost. But you need to also remember that that cost wasn't just Jesus dying on the tree. He paid for something. He purchased something for you individually, personally, intimately. And that purchasing was, I will pay for every single debt you've ever accrued. Every dishonoring you've ever done. Everything that you feel shame over, 
that's been paid for. When you take the elements, I, I'm asking that you just remember that, embrace that reality. Listen to, uh, to Hebrews 10, and this should really, this could probably, be, I could have read this at the beginning and <laughs> it would have been done. Hebrews 10 verse uh, 12 um, says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Listen to this last verse. For by a single offering, one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected for all time. Isn't that astounding to you? That's astounding to me. If you sin like I've sinned, that is shocking and almost unbelievable. If you trust Jesus Christ, if you trust what he did on that tree 2,000 years ago, I want you to take these elements and recognize what was paid for you, recognize what was done for you. Um, in upholding the glory and the worth of his Father, Jesus Christ embraced every sin I will ever commit. And he paid for it. And now the Father is every day of my life conforming me to, into the image of his Son. And he's doing that by laying hold of every desire I have and reconciling it to himself. Let's pray. Father God, you are so gracious and merciful. You're so wonderful in so many ways that, that we don't even fully understand or comprehend right now. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. In the next few minutes as we sing songs, in adoration of you, in worship of you, that you would get underneath everything that we are, the inclinations we have, Father, and that you would start to do your great work of sanctification in our hearts in ways that we have never, ever seen or imagined, that you would take our affections and our delights off of things that are unhealthy for us, and that you would Give us eyes to see you as you really are. The most supreme beauty and glory and treasure in the universe and worthy of an eternity of affection from our hearts. That we'd find you in the scriptures, Lord, where you so clearly communicated yourself to us. That we would find you in prayer when you ask us to, to tell you what we need. Father, I pray that you would do that work. I pray that you'd comfort people right now today who are suffering or who are th going through pain and tragedy and trauma, Father. I pray that your grace would just abundantly flow to those people. And I pray that you do your great work of just, just be with us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.